I didn't edit you to say you endorse Donald Trump or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely don't. So. This is part two of my discussion with Shane Anderson on transparency and how that applies to the parachurch and the parachurch's involvement in evangelical Christianity. Enjoy. Yeah, I, I want to kind of latch on to that backward, that back portion of freedom to say things because you being an elder in the OPC, me being um, a congregant in the PCA who has a deep respect for the confessions, we understand the importance of taking um, vows to uphold our confessions and that as individuals who are ministering in in those capacities, those vows are those are very serious. Individuals need to respect those vows when they take them and they need to do their best to uphold them. And America has always been a largely more loose country with its theological affiliations, whether it be the Southern Baptist Convention and other Baptist denominations that practice more um, congregational polity that allows them to say things that are different from each other from congregation to congregation, or just flat, non-denominational, independent churches. Um, I think of two particular pastors that are very well known that their churches have absolutely no denominational affiliation. That would be R.C. Sproul Sr. and John MacArthur. Um, mm. uh, mm-hmm. Not trying to draw any comparisons or, or make any parallels, but but it is fascinating that both of these men who have really great ministries, both are in, for the most part, independent churches where they don't have to concern themselves with responding to a presbytery or a general assembly, um, even though I know um, Sproul Sr. does still get called in as an expert on theological matters at some presbyteries. But we've seen this even grow to larger proportions in evangelical America with the parachurch movement. And, you know, you and I have had a little bit of discussion prior to this. You know, parachurch movement really comes hand in hand with evangelicalism, where two individuals who disagree on certain things can kind of say, look, let's set these aside for now and let's start a ministry together or let's start a brand together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where we can promote things without being concerned about it contradicting, you know, our confession or our vows. Right. And I'm not saying that individuals enter into parachurch ministry so that they can go against their vows. I'm just saying that there are looser bounds theologically in these parachurch movements, specifically so that more individuals can be brought under the umbrella in, in trying to reduce down to the, the smallest sphere of necessary agreement. And these parachurch movements can be very conducive to individuals who can say the right things but still perform some of these transparency tricks because mm-hmm. it does it does give them a platform but they can connect very very closely with individuals under this parachurch movement who are you know touched by this parachurch movement or 
moved to deeper belief and faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe brought out of a secular lifestyle by this parachurch movement, you know, God be praised for that. But it does still act as um, a potential resting place for this kind of corruption. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and tragically, even among the parachurches where you and I, you know, might have great admiration for the, you know, beyond the vast majority, almost everything that that organization does and stands for, you know, we have parachurch organizations taking the shape of the church. I mean, writing creeds, writing, you know, catechisms, just odd things that, you know, through the force of branding and strong personalities now get, get kind of shoved down the throats of regular Christians. And, you know, we're just regular Christians. You know, I'm an elder in a church, but I'm an elder in a church. And I'm just trying to live the Christian life to the glory of God, under the word of God. And yet, day in and day out, we're barraged by, by marketing power and big personalities who will redefine what it means to, quote unquote, be gospel centered or, you know, hold to the doctrine of Christ or, you know, whatever the, the new fad is. And I think, it, you know, what it, what it sadly ends up doing is rather than promoting Catholicity, it actually attacks it. I mean, I, I sometimes think we probably were closer to each other doctrinally when the Lutheran church across the street was Lutheran and the Presbyterian church was Presbyterian. But now we're like these, you know, we have all these brands and movements and, you know, I I don't know that we can turn back the clock on all of that, but I think we at least need to be aware of that the power that the parachurch um, organizations, the power of them over the way people think and approach issues is, is, is huge and it's pervasive and it creates ways that individuals that maybe are not under accountability like I am or like our ministers are certainly in the OPC or other um, sound denominations, you know, those people aren't under that same accountability all the time. And if they have an eccentric view or practice or God forbid they fall into scandalous sin, you know, then then the people who've latched their lives to them go with them, you know, and, and I think that's terrible. I think it's, I think it's terrible. Um, God, God's wiser than we are. He puts us in churches for a reason, you know, within the church, it's not an affinity group. It's not based on culture or based on, um, preferences, but you know, the church has a fully, if it's organized, right, really has a fully orbed doctrine and confession and covenanted way of life to which people submit and are part of and don't have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm a thumb and I don't like the rest of the hand or I'm a foot and I don't like the rest of the leg. You know, they, they might have the freedom to cut themselves off, but the cutting off is a real thing versus in the, you know, in this kind of parachurch environment in which we live as American Christians, you know, you can just almost, just speedily with no consequence move from group to group and idea to idea. Even as a teacher, some of these pastors, I mean, can teach new doctrines one year to the next. And literally there is no consequence. The crowd doesn't shrink. The, 
you know, no one stops publishing their books. It's an amazing thing to watch. I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic to parachurches than you are. I think part of that might be because I'm a little bit more ecumenically minded and I see parachurches as at least the baby steps of ecumenical um, discussions. I don't think that parachurches have any future in genuine ecumenical discussion. Ultimately, those churches would combine with each other and parachurches would be useless. But I see them as a valuable stepping stone at the beginning. But you you hit on it wonderfully. When the parachurch begins to become a distraction from the local church, the issues take place. And this begins even before the church discipline issue, which I definitely want to finish my thought on. But it develops much, much, much sooner. It develops with, okay, I listen to my pastor once a week when he preaches on Sundays, but I have access to this guy from this parachurch ministry, and I'm listening to him one or two hours a day throughout the rest of the week. Well, whether you realize it or not, that guy's become your pastor, and, and, yeah. and you have, you've begun to take on his identity in your t- in his teaching and in your doctrine much right. more than the pastor in your local church and and I've I've stated it on multiple occasions I'm like are you looking for something to listen to on your podcast re-listen to your pastor sermon I can guarantee right. you you probably didn't catch everything that God wanted to communicate to right. you in your own pastor sermon and so we see this slow departure and it's it can be unintentional and I, and I think individuals who participate in parachurch ministries some are aware of it and some are concerned about it, but it needs to be reiterated over and over and over again that these are supplements to the local church, meaning that the local church needs to be your primary source of nurture and Christian education, just standard word and sacraments kind of things that God-honoring Presbyterians and Lutherans should, you know, follow and, and obey. Um, yeah, but where it really, really comes to fruition is with church discipline, where these groups of people who are in non-denominational or independent uh, churches can participate in these parachurches, and then have almost zero consequences when they go the way of needing church discipline. I think you would agree there are some individuals in these parachurch organizations who are in healthy ecclesiastical structures and will be brought under church discipline if something were to go wrong. But it does seem that the individuals who seek to take the most advantage of the platform of parachurch ministries are independents or non-denominational individuals who... When push comes to shove, they've amassed this following of individuals. They, they turn towards heresy or scandalous sin, and the parachurch ministry realizes, okay, we were being treated as a church, but we can't actually function as a church. And mm-hmm. I don't want to say that that's the parachurch's fault. I, what I really would prefer to say is I'd like to see parachurch organizations exist where the minister must be in good standing in a healthy ecclesiastical structure such that that ecclesiastical structure can be called on 
to to rein those individuals in. I think that would at least be Brother, a, a, yeah. a, a healthy leash. Um, you and I are on the same page with that. I agree. I mean, I I think there are many ways we can work out obedience to Christ in 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 this life that are fine. And you know, I, I think the parachurch model is one of those ways. I mean, it's right for us to recognize that Christ's people don't simply belong to our denomination. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about being Presbyterian. You know, the Lord's table is his table. The the church is his church. We don't bar people from the table who aren't under our jurisdiction. But do we believe they ought to be under the jurisdiction of the visible church? Yes. And I believe that in the parachurch setting. I think that right there would be a rule that would change the whole discussion. You know, if if we demanded of the people we support that they were part of a biblically oriented, structured church that holds them accountable and to which we could go if we needed that accountability to work, not just preventatively, but in this bad situation, then then we'd be you know in a much better position than we are today. And that's a lot of the problem is there's nowhere to go. That, you know, a brand is loyal to its brand. And all you do is you pause the brand for a year, you, you know, rebrand it or you relaunch it and uh, with new marketing and some fresh faces. And then you're back to the same, you know, mess that got us there. One of the things I tell folks when they're, um, you know, I talk to them about coming into the church or just about living the Christian life in the American context is, that ordination really matters. It matters, you know, the Bible says that it can't be preached unless they're sent. And there's this connection then between the sending of the church and the preaching of the word that begets faith in the hearts of the elect. And so it's really important that we say who sent these people, you know, to whom are they accountable? Who's examined them? Who, what, to what church do they belong and what is its confession? You know, I, I, um, I think that would solve so many problems. I don't, I really don't have to worry about what some particular popular teachers, teachers say, you know, I don't even, I don't countenance it. Why? Because I know who, that they're not sent by anyone legitimate. They don't hold to any legitimate confession. They're not under any legitimate authority. So I don't bother to listen to their teaching. I treat it as illegitimate. And I think that, that that protection right there is a great blessing. And then it enables me also to be more ecumenical in the right sense. I can respect folks um, who come from other churches and traditions for what they are and understand where they're standing and love them in Christ and praise God for the work of the Spirit that isn't simply in my congregation, but or our denomination, but is, you know, far broader than that and bigger than that. And we can learn a lot then from each other because there's a reality to someone's identity. It's like, you know, when hands have been laid on someone, I know, I know who that person is, you know, but if Benny Hinn says to me, well, the reason I have a legitimate ministry is I saw Catherine Coleman's dead spirit speak to me. Well, then I know, I know not to listen to anything he says from the start. I don't even have to find out his doctrine 
because he's not been sent by the right means. You know, it wasn't, as Paul says to the young preacher, it wasn't a gift given to him with the laying on of the hands of the elders. This wasn't, I don't know these people. I don't know what faith they represent. I don't know what they stand for. But when someone comes from a soundly organized Lutheran body or Reformed body or Anglican body or Baptist body, if they're, you know, they have this um, more biblically oriented practice to ordination, then I can know where that man is coming from and whether to receive and to what extent to receive his ministry versus all this free range stuff. Right out of your mind. You've got a one way to get to a destination.